Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Molly. My name is Lauren. I'm a therapist in the Boston area. I have been listening to your podcast for a while for my own borderline traits um, that I think are kind of in remission right now, thankfully, Um, but in no small part due to resources like yours, and I'm really thankful for that. And I just wanted to say I have started opening my practice to people that are coming in with BPD diagnoses or just experiencing emotional dysfunction and not knowing how to process through it. And I always recommend your podcast and a couple other people and they come back to session and they report feeling heard. They report feeling seen. It just makes me so thankful that you are taking the gifts that you have and putting it into this format for the rest of us, whether we're clients or therapists or therapists who are also clients. or just stumbling across it looking for some hope. And I just want to say thank you and keep doing what you're doing. Welcome to Back from the Borderline. I'm your host, Molly, and I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power, you just didn't know it, but now you do. 
On this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Back from the Borderline. Huge thank you to Lauren for that absolutely beautiful voicemail. I always love it when I get messages from therapists who are also in therapy themselves and also therapists who are recommending my work to their clients because that means you trust me and you trust what I'm doing and that really means a lot because as most of you know I am not a qualified therapist I'm not a doctor I'm just somebody who knows what it feels like to come back from the borderline and regardless of whether or not you've had any kind of official mental health diagnosis or you're just somebody going through hell you know what it feels like to be at the borderline at the borderline of neurosis, psychosis, of feeling like you can't get out of bed, of feeling like there's no point to any of this. And that brings me to a perfect segue of getting us right back into part two of our spiritual emergency series. On the last episode, we dug into the first part of this article by Stanislav Grov, And we introduced you to the concept of spiritual emergency. This is going to be another one of my famous deep dive multi-episode series. So if you've listened this far and you haven't listened to part one of our spiritual emergency series, just skirt, just stop now, go back, listen to that one, and then come to this because these episodes are going to build on top of each other. If you are still here, it means that you've listened to part one. And just as a little recap, in this first part, we talked about what is a spiritual emergency and the different triggers. How can these types of events happen and what makes them happen? Now, in this episode, we are going to dive into part two, and that is going to begin with an exploration of the different varieties of spiritual crises. Many of you know who listen for a long time know that oftentimes I like to get my ad breaks and sponsor shout outs taken care of right at the top of the episode so that it doesn't interrupt the flow of our exploration. So right now, if you're tuning in from the public feed, you are going to hear a short ad break and right after we get back, we're going to dive in. Listen or skip these. It is up to you. Let's get into the ad break and then we'll be back. Before we dive into the heart of our discussion, I want to take a moment to recognize my podcast sponsors. Their support plays a vital role in what I do here, and it's because of them that I can continue to create and share content freely, making it accessible for listeners like you. So as we step into this short ad break, remember that these moments are more than just ads. They're a bridge that connects to continued free content for all my listeners. So stay with me, and right after this brief pause, we'll be jumping straight into today's episode of Back from the Borderline. Thank you for your understanding and continued support. 
This episode is brought to you by Jung Platform, a unique online space dedicated to exploring the depths of your unconscious mind through the lens of Carl Jung's teachings. Jung Platform's on a mission to make the transformative wisdom of Carl Jung accessible to everyone. They believe, just like I do, in the power of this knowledge to change lives, offering a wide range of courses that dive deep into topics like dream work, mythology, and the psychology of relationships. Each course on Jung Platform is taught by highly qualified instructors who are experts in their field, who bring not just knowledge, but a passion for Jungian psychology. By engaging with these courses, you can hope to gain profound insights into your own psyche, learn the art of understanding your dreams, and embark on a journey of self-discovery and transformation. When you visit backfromtheborderline.com and click on the link for Jung Platform, you can use the code MOLLY10 at checkout to receive 10% off your first course. This code is valid for all of their courses except for their official certification programs. So don't miss this chance to explore the rich world of Carl Jung's work and wisdom. Begin your journey into the depths of your unconscious mind today. This episode is also brought to you by Pure Spectrum CBD, a company that's redefining the standards of CBD products. At Pure Spectrum, purity isn't just part of the name, it's their promise. Their products are crafted with the highest quality organically grown hemp, ensuring that you get the purest form of CBD. CBD is increasingly acknowledged for its potential mental health benefits, which may include aiding in the regulation of emotional responses, supporting trauma recovery, and contributing to the overall balance and regulation of the nervous system. These aspects can be particularly beneficial for anyone navigating the complexities of emotion dysregulation, offering a complementary approach to fostering a more centered and resilient state of mind. Whether you're new to CBD or an experienced user, Pure Spectrum has a range of products to fit your needs. If you follow the Pure Spectrum link at backfromtheborderline.com, you'll be able to lock in 15% off your first purchase on top quality CBD products. My favorite product of theirs is their Tranquil CBD CBN Tincture. I really like this because it helps me fall asleep and stay asleep when I really struggle with insomnia around the luteal phase of my menstrual cycle. But remember, just because something works for me doesn't necessarily mean it will work for you. And CBD can interact with some medications, so it's always a good idea to check with your healthcare provider before adding anything new into your routine. Don't miss this opportunity to experience the benefits of pure, high-quality CBD with Pure Spectrum. Just follow that link at backfromtheborderline.com and your discount will be waiting for you. And now that you've heard from my sponsors, you're going to hear a short ad break. These aren't your usual ads, they're dynamically inserted, much like those you might encounter in a YouTube video. Now I wanna be upfront with you. I do not personally select these ads. They're automatically chosen by my podcast hosting platform. And this setup is essential because it helps me keep my content free and accessible for everyone, especially those who might not have the means for a paid subscription or to be able to purchase products or services from my sponsors. To ensure a smooth and enjoyable 
enjoyable listening experience, I've placed these ads at the beginning. This way, we avoid interrupting during the episode and you can immerse yourself in the content without any breaks. Remember, you have the freedom to listen to or skip these ads as you see fit, but just by tuning in, you're supporting the show in a big way, and for that, I'm incredibly grateful. I really appreciate your patience and your understanding. Nobody loves listening to ads, but they help me keep this show running. So now you'll hear that quick ad break and we'll be right back to dive straight into the rest of today's episode of Back from the Borderline. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for your patience. Let's dive in to part two of our spiritual emergencies exploration. So what are the different varieties of spiritual crises? Because there's lots of different kinds. So that's the part of the article that we're going to be diving straight into. And as usual, I will be providing some reflections and uh, my own opinions and thoughts as we go. So this part starts out like this. A question that is closely related to the problem of differential diagnosis of psychospiritual crisis is their classification. Is it possible to distinguish and define among them certain specific types or categories in the way it is attempted in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, or DSM-5, and its predecessors used by traditional psychiatrists? Before we address this question, it's necessary to emphasize that the attempts to classify psychiatric disorders, with the exception of those that are clearly organic in nature, have been generally unsuccessful. As we know, we've talked a lot about this on this podcast. Essentially, what they're saying here is that there's never yet still been any scientific proof of the existence of any of the quote-unquote disorder or dysfunction labels in the DSM. So... There you go. There's general disagreement about diagnostic categories among individual psychiatrists and also among psychiatric societies of different countries. Although DSM has been revised and changed a number of times, clinicians complain that they have difficulties matching the symptoms of their clients with the official diagnostic categories. Spiritual crises are no exception. If anything, assigning people suffering for these conditions to well-defined diagnostic categories is particularly problematic because of the fact that their phenomenology is unusually rich and can have its source on all various levels of the psyche. 
The symptoms of psychospiritual crises represent a manifestation and exteriorization of the deep dynamics of the human psyche. The individual human psyche is a multidimensional and multi-level system with no internal divisions and boundaries. The elements from postnatal biography and from the Freudian individual unconscious form a continuum with the dynamics of the perinatal level and the transpersonal domain. We can't, therefore, expect to find clearly defined and demarcated types of spiritual emergency. And yet, our work with individuals in psychospiritual crises, exchanges with colleagues doing similar work, and a study of pertinent literature have convinced us that it's possible and useful to outline certain major forms of psychospiritual crises, which have sufficiently characteristic features to be differentiated from others. Naturally, their boundaries are not clear, and in practice, there are some significant overlaps among them. I will first present a list of the most important varieties of psychospiritual crises as Christina and I have identified and then briefly discuss each of them. Christina, I think, is Stanislav Grof's wife and his research partner in this, just to provide some clarity. So here are the different varieties of psychospiritual crises that they list. One, shamanic crises. Two, awakening of kundalini. Three, episodes of unitive consciousness, otherwise known as Maslow's peak experiences. Four, psychological renewal through return to the center. Five, crisis of psychic opening. Six, past life experiences. Seven, communication with spirit guides and quote, channeling. Eight, near-death experiences or NDEs. Nine, close encounters with UFOs slash UAPs and alien abduction experiences, which we have explored in depth with our previous guest, Chris Bledsoe. And if you want to listen to that interview, you will get all that information where my husband Zaz and I actually traveled to the home of Chris Bledsoe and experienced close encounters with non-human intelligence and UAPs ourself. I've witnessed this myself with my own eyes as recently as September 2023. It's now January 19th, um, 2024 at the time of recording, just to put all of this in perspective in case you're listening to this in the future. Number 10, possession states. Number 11, alcoholism and drug addiction. So it looks like now in the next part of the article, which is actually pretty cool, we're going to go into each of these different types so that you can really understand them. Because here's the thing, all of these different things are thrown around so much. You hear about kundalini awakenings, people practicing shamanism, near-death experiences, channeling, all this stuff. You hear this stuff thrown around a lot, but what you don't hear is research and information with practicing clinicians who have done active work with people undergoing these things. So this should be pretty interesting. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is the shamanic crisis. Grav writes, the career of many shamans, witch doctors, or medicine men and women in different cultures begins with a dramatic involuntary visionary state that the anthropologists call, quote, shamanic illness. 
During such episodes, future shamans usually withdraw psychologically or even physically from their everyday environment and have powerful holotropic experiences. They typically undergo a journey into the underworld, the realm of the dead, where they experience attacks by vicious demons and are exposed to horrendous tortures and ordeals. This painful initiation culminates in experiences of death and dismemberment, followed by rebirth and ascent or magic flight to celestial regions. This might involve transformation into a bird, such as an eagle, falcon, thunderbird, or condor, and flight into the realm of the cosmic sun. The novice shaman can also have an experience of being carried by such a bird into the solar region. In some cultures, the motif of magic flight is replaced by that of reaching the celestial realms by climbing the world tree, a rainbow, a pole with many notches, or a ladder made of arrows. In the course of these arduous visionary journeys, novice shamans develop deep contact with the forces of nature and with animals, both in their natural form and their archetypal versions, or animal spirits, or power animals. When these visionary journeys are successfully completed, they can be profoundly healing. In this process, novice shamans often heal themselves from emotional, psychosomatic, and even physical diseases. For this reason, shamans are frequently referred to as wounded healers. In many instances, the involuntary initiates attain this experience of deep insights into the energetic and metaphysical causes of diseases and learn how to not only heal themselves, but also others. Following the successful completion of the initiatory crisis, the individual becomes a shaman and returns to his or her people as a fully functioning and honored member of the community. He or she assumes the combined role of an honored priest, visionary, and healer. In our workshops and professional training, Modern Americans, Europeans, Australians, and Asians have often experienced in their holotropic breathwork sessions episodes that bore close resemblance to shamanic crises. Besides the elements of physical and emotional torture, death, and rebirth, such states involved experiences of connection with animals, plants, and elemental forces of nature. The individuals experiencing such crises also often showed spontaneous tendencies to create rituals that were similar to those practiced by shamans of various cultures. On occasion, mental health professionals with this history have been able to use the lessons from their own journeys and their work and develop and practice modern versions of shamanic procedures. The attitude of native cultures towards shamanic crises has often been explained by the lack of elementary psychiatric knowledge of the shaman's tribesmen and the resulting tendency to attribute every experience and behavior that these people do not understand to supernatural forces. However, nothing could be further from the truth. Shamanic cultures which recognize shamans and show them great respect have no difficulty differentiating them from individuals who are quote-unquote crazy or sick. To be considered a shaman, the individual has to successfully complete the transformation journey and integrate well 
the episodes of challenging holotropic states of consciousness. He or she has to be able to function at least as well as other members of the tribe. The way shamanic crises are approached and treated in these societies is an extremely useful and illustrative model of dealing with psycho-spiritual crises in general. I really love this last part because it talks about how skilled these indigenous tribes were. They knew the difference between someone who had maybe a propensity towards these beautiful spiritual experiences, but they were unable to integrate them because they knew the importance of, yes, we want to be able to move within and get information from the quote-unquote spirit worlds, but you also have to respect, interact with, and engage with 3D reality. And a shaman had to be able to dance between these two states and integrate and walk between the spirit realms and physical reality. They knew the difference between someone who had kind of just lost it and gone into psychosis versus someone who was going through a spiritual crisis. And here in the States, in the Western world, where we are really stuck in this materialist view of reality, anyone who talks about spiritual states or shows signs of a psycho-spiritual crisis is just point blank period labeled crazy whether or not they are not integrated and actually maybe in a genuine uh, psychosis a very very like psychotic state or someone who is just going through a psycho-spiritual crisis and needs help integrating these things and that's the tragedy of where we're at now now the next part is an exploration of the awakening of kundalini another type of spiritual crisis this is very important for us to discuss because damn, do you not see so much all over Instagram, all over TikTok, I'm sure. I'm not on that godforsaken app yet. I know there's so many good things about it, but I just haven't been able to get into it because of its addictive nature and just because of the mass spread of spiritual misinformation that's on there. Every time I go on there or every time someone sends me some stuff from spiritual TikTok, I'm like shaking my damn head. So this is important. You hear all about kundalini, spiritual awakening. So let's hear about the awakening of kundalini from actual academic sources. He writes, the manifestations of this form of psycho-spiritual crisis resemble the descriptions of the awakening of kundalini or the serpent power found in ancient Indian literature. According to the yogis, kundalini is the generative cosmic energy, feminine in nature, which is responsible for the creation of the cosmos. In its latent form, it resides at the base of the human spine in the subtle or energetic body, which is a field that pervades and permeates as well as surrounds the physical body. This latent energy can become activated by meditation, specific exercises, the intervention of an accomplished spiritual teacher or guru or for completely unknown reasons. The activated kundalini, called shakti, rises through the nadis, or channels or conduits in the subtle body. The principal three nadis rising along the body's vertical axis are called ida, shushumna, and pingala. As kundalini ascends, it clears old traumatic imprints and opens the centers of psychic energy called chakras, situated at the points where Ida and Pingala are crossing. 
This process, although highly valued and considered beneficial in the yogic tradition, is not without dangers and requires expert guidance by a guru whose kundalini is fully awakened and stabilized. The most dramatic signs of kundalini awakening are physical and psychological manifestations called kriyas. The kriyas involve intense sensations of energy and heat streaming up the spine, usually associated with violent shaking, spasms, and twisting movements. It sounds a little bit like the exorcist, you know what I'm saying? Intense waves of seemingly unmotivated emotions such as anxiety, anger, sadness, or joy and ecstatic rapture can surface and temporarily dominate the psyche. This can be accompanied by visions of brilliant light or various archetypal beings and a variety of internally perceived sounds. Many people involved in this process have also emotionally charged and convincing experiences of what seem to be memories from their past lives. Involuntary and often uncontrollable behaviors complete the picture speaking in tongues, chanting unknown songs or sacred invocations or mantras, assuming yogic postures or asanas and gestures or mudras, and making a variety of animal sounds and movements. Carl Jung and his co-workers dedicated to this phenomenon a series of special seminars, Jung's perspective on Kundalini proved to be probably the most remarkable error of his entire career. He concluded that the awakening of Kundalini was an exclusively Eastern phenomenon and predicted that it would take at least a thousand years before this energy would be set into motion in the West as a result of depth psychology. In the last several decades, unmistakable signs of kundalini awakening have been observed in thousands of Westerners. The credit for drawing attention to this condition belongs to Californian psychiatrist and ophthalmologist Lee Sanella, who studied single-handedly nearly 1,000 such cases and summarized his findings in a book called The Kundalini Experience, Psychosis or Transcendence. Another book that you might check out, one I'm reading right now, is called An Angel Called My Name by Joy T. J-Y-O-T-I. And again, it's called An Angel Called My Name, a story of transformational energy that lives in the body. Joy T is someone who I'm working with personally as a spiritual director, and she also attended the Jung Institute in Zurich, and she experienced what she believes is a kundalini spiritual awakening, and she expertly describes what happened to her in this book. Highly recommend. The only place that you can get it, because if you get it through Amazon, the book's going to be like 80 bucks. You can get it through somewhere called the Center for Sacred Studies.org. The website is Center for Sacred Studies.org, and you can get the book for 20 bucks because if you search it on Amazon, you're going to see it being charged out the A. And Joy T doesn't get any money for that book. So if you buy it directly from Center for Sacred Studies, you'll be able to check it out that way. So the next type of spiritual crises that we dive into now is what's called episodes of unitive consciousness or peak experiences. The American psychologist Abraham Maslow studied many hundreds of people who had unitive mystical experiences and coined for them the term peak experiences in 1964. 
he expressed sharp criticism of Western psychiatry's tendency to confuse such mystical states with mental disease. According to Maslow, they should be considered supernormal rather than abnormal phenomenon. This makes me want to um, hop in here and share one of my favorite quotes. And I don't even know who said this, but everything is paranormal until it's normal. I really like that phrase because I really believe it to be true. And it sounds like Maslow is saying something similar here, where these states should be considered super normal rather than abnormal. They're better than normal. And it, it's not something to be afraid of or not want to experience. If they're not interfered with and are allowed to run their natural course, these states typically lead to better functioning in the world and to self-actualization or self-realization, the capacity to express more fully one's creative potential and to live a more rewarding and satisfying life. Psychiatrist and consciousness researcher Walter Pockney developed a list of basic characteristics of a typical peak experience based on the work of Maslow and W.T. Stace. He used the following criteria to describe this state of mind in 1966. So here are the different attributes that he believes make up a unitive consciousness moment or a peak experience. First, unity, like a feeling of unity, inner and outer, right? This feeling of being one with everything, strong positive emotion, transcendence of time and space, a sense of being in the presence of something sacred or what is described as numinosity, one of my favorite words. Feeling paradoxical in nature, right? Feeling a little bit confusing. Objectivity and reality of the insights. Ineffability, and that word kind of means like you can't describe it. And positive after effects. As this list indicates, when we have a peak experience or a moment of unitive consciousness, we have a sense of overcoming the usual fragmentation of the mind and body and feel that we have reached a state of unification and wholeness, even just for a brief moment. We also transcend the ordinary distinction between subject and object and experience an ecstatic union with humanity, nature, the cosmos, and God. This is associated with intense feelings of joy, bliss, serenity, and inner peace. In a mystical experience of this kind, we have a sense of leaving ordinary reality where space has three dimensions and time is linear. We enter a metaphysical transcendent realm where those categories no longer apply. In this state, infinity and eternity become experiential realities. The numinous quality of this state has nothing to do with previous religious beliefs. It reflects a direct apprehension of the divine nature of reality. Descriptions of peak experiences are usually full of paradoxes. The experience can be described as a, quote, contentless yet all-containing, end quote. It has no specific content, but also yet seems to contain everything in a potential form. We can have a sense of being simultaneously everything and nothing all at once. While our personal identity and the limited ego have disappeared, we feel that we have expanded to such an extent that our being encompasses the entire universe. Similarly, it's possible to perceive all forms as empty or emptiness as being pregnant with forms. 
We can even reach a state in which we see that the world exists and does also not exist at the exact same time. The peak experience can convey what seems to be ultimate wisdom and knowledge in matters of cosmic relevance, which the Upanishads describe as, quote, knowing that, the knowledge of which gives the knowledge of everything, end quote. What we've learned during this experience is ineffable, and like I mentioned before, ineffable means it can't be described by words. The very nature and structure of our language seem to be inadequate for this purpose, yet the experience can profoundly influence our system of values and strategy of existence. Because of the generally benign nature and positive potential of the peak experience, this category of spiritual crisis that should be least problematic. So what they're saying here is moments of unitive consciousness don't really carry some of the same risks as some of these other ones. They, they're actually quite safe. These experiences are by their nature transient and self-limited. That means like they're very short-lasting. There is absolutely no reason why they should have adverse consequences. And yet, due to the misconceptions of the psychiatric profession concerning spiritual matters, many people who experience such states end up hospitalized, receive pathological labels, and their condition is suppressed by psychopharmacological medication. So I want to just share a little bit. I have absolutely experienced moments of unitive consciousness like this or peak experiences, one of which happened when I was not under the influence of anything. It was after a meditation that I did that involved meditating on being back in the womb, which led to me doing a lot of crying. And then I had this peak experience, this moment of unitive consciousness. And when I read about these, I went, oh my God, finally, I have language to ex- to express this because if I tried to explain it to anyone, especially when it happened to me, because this was very early on in my spiritual journey, now I've read the books of many mystics, people like Hildegard of Bingen, uh, Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, just a few of these Western mystics who experienced these transcendent moments of unitive consciousness, which has given me a lot of language to be able to frame these things through. In the moment that I experienced it, I just felt this deep sense of everything being connected. I felt like I wasn't myself anymore. I felt this state of like bliss. It's very hard to explain, but the explanation given here matches it very, very well. And when I say these moments can be very short, like it can feel like an eternity while you're while it's happening to you, but in reality, it's just a very short time, maybe just a couple of minutes, maybe not even that. It's just this moment where almost you feel like you understand things so much better. It's almost like you've received, I hate this phrase, like a download because it's been so co-opted by pop spirituality, but it's almost like you know something more than before and it fills you with this this sense of knowing and security that maybe the day before you were in a deep depression and then this happens to you and you feel almost like you've been spiritually renewed. And it's hard to describe to anyone, but you might change automatically and feel better and you can't describe it. 
And this does not involve you feeling like you're going crazy. Even though describing it to someone might make you feel crazy, you actually feel more grounded than ever before, more okay, more spiritually nourished. So it's just, it's very paradoxical in that sense. And speaking to someone about it who doesn't understand can absolutely make you feel like a crazy person. So the next type of spiritual crises that they describe here is psychological renewal through return to the center. Grov writes, another important type of transpersonal crisis was described by Californian psychiatrist and Jungian analyst John Weir Perry, who called it the renewal process. And this happened between like 1974, 1976, and 1998. These are the years that Perry was writing about this. Because of its depth and intensity, this is the type of psychospiritual crisis that is most likely diagnosed as serious mental disease. The experiences of people involved in the renewal process are so strange, so extravagant, and so far from everyday reality that it seems obvious that some serious pathological process must be affecting the functioning of their brains. Individuals involved in this kind of crisis experience their psyche as a colossal battlefield where a cosmic combat is being played out between the forces of good and evil or light and darkness. They are preoccupied with the theme of death, ritual killing, sacrifice, martyrdom, and the afterlife. The problem of opposites fascinates them, particularly issues related to the differences between sexes. They experience themselves as the center of fantastic events that have cosmic relevance and are important for the future of the world. Their visionary states tend to take them farther and farther back through their own history and the history of humanity, all the way to the creation of the world and the original ideal state of paradise. In this process, they seem to strive for perfection, trying to correct things that went wrong in the past. After a period of turmoil and confusion, the experiences become more and more pleasant and start moving toward a resolution. The process often culminates in the experience of heros gamos, or sacred marriage, in which the individual is elevated to an illustrious or even divine status and experiences union with an equally distinguished partner. This indicates that the masculine and feminine aspects of the personality are reaching a new balance. The sacred union can be experienced either with an imaginal archetypal figure or projected onto an idealized person from one's life who appears to be a karmic partner or soulmate. At this time, one can also have experiences involving what Jungian psychology interprets as symbols representing the self, and that's self with a capital S, the transpersonal center that reflects our deepest and true nature and is related to but not totally identical with the Hindu concept of Atman Brahman. In visionary states, it can appear the form of a source of light, of supernatural beauty, radiant spheres, precious stones and jewels, pearls, and other symbolic representations. Examples of this development from painful and challenging experiences to the discovery of one's divinity can be found in John Perry's books and in The Stormy Search for Self, our own book on spiritual emergencies. So, 
Groff and his wife wrote a book called The Stormy Search for Self. I'm taking a pause here because it's kind of crazy. So we did a dream tending and dream analysis episode of a listener who wrote me with her dream a couple of episodes ago on the premium portion of the podcast. And part of her dream was her holding precious stones. So I thought this is really fascinating. So Amelia, if you're listening to this, might be interesting for you to dive into this concept a little bit more because it seems to be being reflected in your dreams, which is pretty fucking cool. At this stage of the process, these glorious experiences are interpreted as a personal apotheosis. I just had to re-record that part like 70 times to get this word right. A personal apotheosis, a ritual celebration that raises one experiences of oneself to a highly exalted human status or to a state above the human condition altogether, a great leader, a world savior, or even lord of the universe. This is often associated with a profound sense of spiritual rebirth that replaces the earlier preoccupation with death. At the time of completion and integration, one usually envisions an ideal future, a new world governed by love and justice where all ills and evils have been overcome. As the intensity of the process subsides, the person realizes that the entire drama was actually just a psychological transformation that was limited to his or her inner world and did not involve external reality. According to John Perry, the renewal process moves the individual in the direction of what Carl Jung called individuation, a full realization and expression of one's deep potential. One aspect of Perry's research deserves special notice since it produced what is most probably the most convincing evidence against simplistic biological understanding of psychosis. He was able to show that the experiences involved in the renewal process exactly match the main themes of royal dramas that were enacted in many ancient cultures on New Year's Day. These ritual dramas celebrating the advent of the new year were performed during what Perry calls the archaic era of incarnated myth. This was the period in the history of these cultures when the rulers were considered to be incarnated gods and not ordinary human beings. Examples of such god kings were Egyptian pharaohs, the Peruvian Incas, the Hebrew and Hittite kings, or the Chinese and Japanese emperors. The positive potential of the renewal process and its deep connection with archetypal symbolism and with specific periods of human history represents a very compelling argument against the theory that these experiences are chaotic, pathological products of diseased brains. They are clearly, closely connected with the evolution of consciousness on the individual and collective level. This is pretty fascinating to me because how many examples have you heard of somebody who ends up in a psych ward because they're convinced that they're Jesus Christ himself? I mean, for God's sake, I just finished the absolutely horrifying 10 on 10, do not recommend watching the documentary about the twin flames universe which is like this horrifying 
cult that started on social media led by this guy and his wife. Um, to me, the guy was the most pathological and awful of the two. It seemed like his wife kind of went along with it. But again, she could have been a more nefarious force because all I know is what was shown on this documentary. But needless to say, it was fascinating to watch because he went through a part where he really started identifying with Jesus Christ and thinking he was Jesus. And I've read this before that people that start thinking they are a reincarnation of Jesus or some other, you know, Christ-like figure, this is very common in spiritual awakening or these like interesting return to center phenomena. But the thing is, is that eventually you have to realize this is just an internal psychic drama that you're going through that you have to integrate. The idea is, is that you wake up from that. You realize I am not Jesus Christ. I am kind of going through this internal psychological rebirth process. And the idea is to integrate this and realize the function of it. But the problem is some people get stuck there. They believe they're Jesus. And then that's when it becomes like psychosis and you're not going to get the integration or individuation from the process. I think that might be some helpful context. And if you do go and watch this Twin Flames Universe documentary, you'll be able to really see this kind of I think spiritual crisis process play out in real time, especially with this cult leader type figure guy that heads it all up. So the next type of spiritual crisis that we discuss is the crisis of psychic opening. He writes, an increase in intuitive abilities and the occurrence of psychic or paranormal phenomena are very common during psychospiritual crises of all kinds. However, in some instances, the influx of information from non-ordinary sources such as astral projection, precognition, telepathy, or clairvoyance becomes so overwhelming and confusing that it dominates the picture and constitutes a major problem in and of itself. Among the most dramatic manifestations of psychic openings are out-of-body experiences. In the middle of everyday life, and often without any noticeable trigger, one's consciousness can detach from the body and witness what's happening in the surroundings or in various remote locations. The information obtained during these episodes by extrasensory perception often proves to correspond to consensus reality. Out-of-body experiences occur with extraordinary frequency in near-death situations where the accuracy of this, quote, remote viewing has been established by systematic studies. If you've not heard of remote viewing, go down that rabbit hole because it's a thing. The CIA has literally used remote viewing. Remote viewing has been used to find um, missing people. It's a thing. Go look it up. Go. <laughs> there have been plenty of uh, stuff and documents that used to be hidden by the CIA that are now out for public consumption. So just go down that rabbit hole if you want to. People experiencing intense psychic opening might be so much in touch with the inner processes of others that they exhibit remarkable telepathic abilities. They might indiscriminately verbalize accurate, incisive insights into other people's minds concerning various issues that these individuals are trying to hide. This can frighten, irritate, and alienate others so severely that it often becomes a significant factor contributing to unnecessary hospitalization or punitive measures within the psychiatric facility. Similarly, 
accurate precognitions of future situations and clairvoyant perceptions, particularly if they occur repeatedly in impressive clusters, can seriously upset the person in crisis as well as alarming those around them since they undermine their notion of the nature of reality. We've talked about the concept of ontological shock, which basically means if a normie person is kind of like freaked out to the point where what this like person who's experiencing these states, especially if you maybe you go to a psychiatrist and you're telling them things that they kind of feel are eerily accurate, they could experience uh, ontological shock, which is like their view of reality is rocked and shaken to the point where they like shut down and they're like, no, not going there, you know? So in experiences that can be called mediumistic, one has a sense of losing one's own identity and taking on the identity of another person. This can involve assuming the other person's body image, posture, gestures, facial expression, feelings, and even thought processes. Accomplished shamans, psychics, and spiritual healers can use such experiences in a controlled and productive way. Unlike the persons in psychospiritual crisis, they are capable of taking on the identity of others at will and also resuming their own separate identity after they accomplish the task of the session. During the crisis of psychic opening, the sudden, unpredictable, and uncontrollable loss of one's ordinary identity can be very frightening. People in spiritual crisis often experience uncanny coincidences that link the world of inner realities such as dreams and visionary states to happenings in everyday life. This phenomenon was first recognized and described by Carl Jung, who gave it the name synchronicity and explored it in a special essay in 1960. The study of synchronistic events helped Jung realize that archetypes were not principles limited to the intrapsychic domain. It became clear to him that they have what he called psychoid quality, which means that they govern not only the individual psyche, but also happenings in the world of consensus reality. For those of you who are interested, I talked a lot more about synchronicities in my episode with my friend Michael, who runs the channel Third Eye Drops on YouTube, and you can find that uh, episode on synchronicities in my feed. Any researcher who seriously studies Jungian synchronicities discovers that they are without any doubt authentic phenomena and cannot be ignored and discounted as accidental coincidences. They also cannot be indiscriminately dismissed as pathological distortions of reality, erroneous perception of meaningful relations where, in actuality, there are none. This is a common practice in contemporary psychiatry where any allusion to meaningful coincidences is automatically diagnosed as, quote, delusion of reference. So, just to add a little bit of info here, I have talked about this on a couple of my different episodes, but I have experienced some fucking crazy synchronicities, the craziest of which being one I experienced with my husband Zaz. So when someone is also there to witness it with you, it can even be more powerful. And to put it very shortly and succinctly, because I've described this on other episodes, is Zaz had a dream about a black widow spider that had really made an impact on him. And we were talking about it in the car. And I immediately started looking up, you know, what are some ancient indigenous 
um, what's the symbolism behind Black Widow Spider? How can we explore this more? And Zaz said, holy shit. And we looked up and as we were talking about this, a white truck was driving past us on the road and we see that this car had a sticker on the side of it and it was a huge spider. And the closer we got, we saw that it was a black spider with like this red hourglass on its back. And it literally said in like black font, Black Widow. And we were like, holy shit. What are the odds that we would be driving and talking about a Black Widow? And then minutes later, out of all the stickers that could be on any truck, and it was the only sticker on this truck, drove by. I have a picture of it to prove it as well. And I've experienced so many different types of synchronicities just like that. And if you're listening, I guarantee you have probably experienced some yourself. So the article continues by saying, in the case of true synchronicities, any open-minded witness who have access to all the relevant information recognize that the coincidences involved are beyond any reasonable statistical probability. Extraordinary synchronicities accompany many forms of transpersonal crisis, and in crises of psychic opening, they are particularly common. So we move on to the next type of psychospiritual crisis, which is past life experience. Among the most dramatic and colorful transpersonal phenomena occurring in holotropic states of consciousness are experiences that appear to be memories from previous incarnations. These are sequences that take place in other historical periods and often in other countries and are usually associated with powerful emotions and physical sensations. They often portray in great detail the persons, circumstances, and historical settings involved. Their most remarkable aspect is a convincing sense of remembering and reliving something that one has already seen, or déjà vu, or experienced, which is déjà vécu. I'd actually never heard of déjà vécu. So according to this article, Reliving something that you've already seen is deja vu, and reliving or experiencing something you've already experienced is deja vu. So there you go. The more you know, reading Rainbow. This is clearly the same type of experience that in Asia and many other places of the world inspired the belief in reincarnation and the law of karma. The rich and accurate information that these past life memories provide as well as their healing potential, impels us to take them seriously. When the content of a karmic experience fully emerges into consciousness, it can suddenly provide an explanation for many otherwise incomprehensible aspects of one's daily life. Strange difficulties in relationships with certain people, unsubstantiated fears, and particular idiosyncrasies and attractions, as well as other incomprehensible emotional and psychosomatic symptoms suddenly seem to make sense as karmic carryovers from a previous lifetime. These problems typically disappear when the karmic pattern in question is consciously experienced and integrated. Past life experiences can complicate life in different ways. Before their content emerges fully into consciousness and reveals itself, one can almost be haunted in everyday life by strange emotions, physical feelings, and visions without knowing where they're coming from or what they mean. Experienced out of context, these experiences naturally appear incomprehensible and irrational. 
Another kind of complication occurs when a particularly strong karmic experience starts emerging into consciousness in the middle of everyday life and interferes with our normal functioning. One might also feel compelled to act out some of the elements of the karmic pattern before it's fully experienced and understood or completed. So for instance, it might suddenly seem that a certain person in one's present life played an important role in a previous incarnation, the memory of which is emerging into consciousness. So when this happens, one might seek emotional contact with a person who now appears to be a quote soulmate from one's karmic past or conversely confrontation and showdown with an adversary from another lifetime. This kind of activity can lead to unpleasant complications since the alleged karmic partners usually have no basis in their own experiences for understanding this behavior. Even if one manages to avoid the danger of embarrassing acting out, the problems are not necessarily over. After a past life memory has fully emerged into consciousness and its content and implications have been revealed to the experiencer, there remains one more challenge. One has to reconcile this experience with the traditional beliefs and values of an industrial civilization. Denial of the possibility of reincarnation represents a rare instance of complete agreement between the Christian church and materialistic science. Therefore, in Western culture, acceptance and intellectual integration of a past life memory is an incredibly difficult task for an atheist as well as a traditionally religious person. Assimilation of past life experiences into one's belief system can be a relatively easy task for someone who does not have a strong commitment to Christianity or the materialistic scientific worldview. The experiences are usually so convincing that one simply accepts their message and might even feel excited about this new discovery. However, fundamentalist Christians and those who have a strong investment in rationality and the traditional scientific perspective can be catapulted into a period of confusion when they are so confronted with convincing personal past life experiences that seriously challenge their belief system, which again is like perfect example of ontological shock, which some people just completely shut down and they're scared to talk about it and then they repress it and that creates even more splits in the psyche and more problems. That's like an aside for me, but I know that because that's kind of what happened to me when my own spiritual awakening process started. I was really experiencing some serious cognitive dissonance, some serious issues dealing with my own like major materialistic view on reality that I'd grown up in. And then I had also been swimming mainly, the only other spiritual resource I had to draw from was fundamentalist Christian worldview. So learning about the mystics, learning about esotericism and stuff really, really helped me feel a lot less crazy when I was starting to go through a lot of this stuff myself. All right. So the next type of spiritual crisis, communication with spirit guides and channeling. Occasionally, one can enter in a holotropic state of consciousness a being who seems to show interest in a personal relationship and assumes the position of a teacher, guide, protector, or simply a convenient source of information. Such beings are usually perceived as discarnate humans, suprahuman entities, or deities existing on higher planes of consciousness and endowed with extraordinary wisdom. 
Sometimes they take on the form of a person. At other times, they appear as radiant sources of light or simply let their presence be sensed. Their messages are usually received in the form of direct thought transfer or through other extrasensory means. In some instances, communication can take the form of verbal messages. A particularly interesting phenomenon in this category is channeling, which in several past decades received much attention from the public and mass media. A person who is channeling transmits to others messages received from a source that appears to be external to his or her consciousness. It occurs through speaking in a trance, using automatic writing, or recording of telepathically received thoughts. Channeling has played an important role in the history of humanity. Among the channeled spiritual teachings are many scriptures of enormous cultural influence, such as the ancient Indian Vedas, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon. A remarkable modern example of a channeled text is A Course in Miracles, recorded by psychologist Helen Schuman, which was around, I believe, in the 1970s. Experiences of channeling can precipitate a serious psychological and spiritual crisis. The individual involved can interpret the experience as an indication of beginning insanity. This is particularly likely if the channeling involves hearing voices, a well-known symptom of paranoid schizophrenia. The quality of the channeled material varies from trivial and questionable chatter to extraordinary information. On occasion, channeling can provide consistently accurate data about subjects to which the recipient was never exposed. This fact can then appear to be particularly convincing proof of the involvement of supernatural realities and can lead to serious philosophical confusion for an atheistic layperson or a scientist with materialistic worldview. So for example, I know this, this is an aside from me, the psychologist Helen Schumann who channeled A Course in Miracles, she was an atheist before any of this happened. And she claimed to channel A Course in Miracles directly from Jesus Christ. And if you read um, a being who claimed to be taking on the persona of Jesus Christ, however you want to perceive that. But if you read some of The Course in Miracles, this woman is channeling like these very high level mystical statements that like shocked people around her because she was previously an atheistic, rational minded psychologist. So Graf goes on to write, readers interested in this phenomena will find much valuable information in special studies by Arthur Hastings and Ion Klimo and it sounds like Hastings did most of his writing in 1991 and Klimo in 1998. Spirit guides are usually perceived as advanced spiritual beings on a high level of consciousness evolution who are endowed with superior intelligence and extraordinary moral integrity. This can lead to highly problematic ego inflation in the channeler who might feel chosen for a special mission and see it as proof of his or her own superiority. And I think that's a really good thing to bring up here is that there are people who have extraordinary extrasensory 
perception abilities whose ego gets in the way and can impact the clarity, integrity, or accuracy of their information, right? Just like there are good doctors and not so great doctors out there whose ego gets in the way, same thing with therapists, same thing with CEOs, just anything else, right? Someone needs to be very psychologically integrated and um, do some deep psychological inner work to be able to ensure that they're maintaining the integrity of the message when they're doing this kind of stuff. And you will see that there are lots of people on earth that are very intuitive, that maybe genuinely do have the ability to tap into these states, but they are so... uh, you know, they're kind of like leaning towards like this narcissistic side. I'm not labeling them with that. It's just kind of a trait, this inflated, egotistical, narcissistic aspect of their personality is kind of dominating. Someone who's a really good example of someone who's kind of getting this channeled material is again, previous back from the borderline guest, Chris Bledsoe, who I have met myself and is someone who does not seem at all to be Um, suffering from a super inflated ego. He is someone who's experienced um, messages from a being that uh, defines itself as the lady who looks maybe a lot like the Virgin Mary. And his experiences share a lot of commonalities with many other common Marian apparitions is what they're called. And beings that have presented themselves as something that looks like the Virgin Mary or this lady that looks a lot like the depiction of the Virgin Mary have appeared to indigenous Native American tribes all over the world and and a lot of them in front of children and then people like Chris Bledsoe. So it's pretty fascinating stuff. And again, I highly recommend you go check out my episode on Chris because he talks more about that from his firsthand experience. Next, we will talk about near-death experiences. World mythology, folklore, and spiritual literature abound in vivid accounts of the experiences associated with death and dying. Special sacred texts have been dedicated exclusively to descriptions and discussions of the post-Hummus journey of the soul, such as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Aztec Codex Borgia, the Mayan Book of the Dead, and their European counterpart, Ars Moriendi or the art of dying. In the past, this mythology was discounted by Western scholars as a product of fantasy and wishful thinking of primitive people who were unable to face the fact of impermanence of their own mortality. This situation changed dramatically after the publication of Raymond Moody's international bestseller, Life After Life, which brought scientific confirmation of these accounts and showed that an encounter with death can be a fantastic adventure in consciousness. Moody's book was based on reports of 150 people who had experienced a close confrontation with death or who were actually pronounced clinically dead, but regained consciousness and lived to tell their stories. Moody reported that people who had near-death experiences, or NDEs, frequently witnessed a review of their entire lives in the form of a colorful, incredibly condensed replay occurring within only seconds of clock time, which by the way is like when you say my life flashed before my eyes, that's where this comes from. Consciousness often detached from the body and floated freely above the scene, observing it with curiosity and detached amusement, or traveled to distant locations. 
many people described passing through a dark tunnel or funnel toward a divine light of supernatural brilliance and beauty. A little bit of an aside for me here, one of my favorite authors is Martha Beck, and Martha Beck goes into detail in her book. I believe she talks about it in The Way of Integrity, her book. She's talked about it on her podcast. Please look up Martha Beck. Long-term listeners of the podcast know that I am a fangirl of hers. I hope I can have her on the podcast one day, but she had a near-death experience where she was in surgery and she also, she woke up from her anesthesia, but she couldn't like verbalize this. And she saw herself floating above her body, experienced the dark tunnel of light and all this stuff. That's another thing that has come out is that many people that have NDEs have very, very similar experiences, but then just describe it in a different way. So Grav continues, this light was not physical in nature, but had distinctly personal characteristics. It was a being of light, radiating infinite all-embracing love, forgiveness, and acceptance. In a personal exchange, often perceived as an audience with God, these individuals received lessons regarding existence and universal laws and had the opportunity to evaluate their past by these new standards. Then they had chose to return to ordinary reality and live their lives in a new way, congruent with the principles that they'd learned. Since their publication, Moody's findings have been repeatedly confirmed by other researchers in by someone named Ring in 1982, Sabum in 1982, and Grayson and Flynn in 1984. Most survivors emerge from their near-death experiences profoundly changed. They have a universal and all-encompassing spiritual vision of reality, a new system of values, and a radically different general strategy of life. They have deep appreciation for being alive and feel kinship with all living beings and concern for the future of humanity and of the planet. However, the fact that the encounter with death has a great positive potential does not mean that this transformation is always easy. Near-death experiencers very frequently lead to psycho-spiritual crises, a powerful NDE can radically undermine the worldview of the people involved because it catapults them abruptly and without warning into a reality that is radically different from the one they knew before. A car accident in the middle of rush hour traffic or a heart attack during a morning jog can launch someone within a matter of seconds into a fantastic visionary adventure that tears his or her ordinary reality apart. Following an NDE, people might need special counseling and support to be able to integrate these extraordinary experiences into their everyday life. Unfortunately, the approach of the personnel in most medical facilities to NDE survivors leaves much to be desired, in spite of the fact that in the last few decades this phenomenon has received much attention in professional literature as well as in the mass media. Few survivors of NDEs receive professional counseling that most of them sorely need. It's not yet mandatory to include the reports of patients' NDEs in medical files, although it's well known that these experiences can have profound impact on their emotional and psychosomatic conditions. A comprehensive discussion of the problems related to NDEs can be found in the book The Ultimate Journey, Consciousness and the Mystery of Death, which was also written by the author of this article, Stanislav Grov, in 2006. So before we move on to the next type of spiritual crisis, 
one thing that I'm struck by as we're reading all of this, all of the additional resources that Grav recommends of all these different types of spiritual crisis, notice how they're from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. That is a fucking forward, and some of them early uh, 2000s, okay? So that's a 50-year time span. That is arguably in the scheme of time. Though, and by the way, these are Western sources. We're not talking about like the Upanishads or the Vedic texts or some of or the Bible or any of these that are thousands upon thousands of years old, okay? But I'm saying these more modern resources that are being confirmed in the West are only about 50 years old. So only for about 50 years has any of this stuff be even taken a modicum amount of seriousness in our our like our conscious reality and even that the amount of people that pay attention to any of these resources is very very slim so like in the 60s you would have been seen as like a total hippie woo woo nutbag for listening to any of this stuff and then in the 70s and 80s and 90s it was very minimal same thing with any of us millennials who grew up in like the early 2000s we were not paying attention to any of this now i believe in 2023, 2024, and beyond, we are getting seriously confronted with this stuff, especially when we are seeing as early as last year in 2023 in Congress, we have, you know, people testifying in Congress talking about the fact that the CIA have um, for a long time been engaged with potential quote-unquote extraterrestrial beings hiding things from the general public you have characters like lou elizondo again go down that rabbit hole if you want chris bledsoe who i have met myself and interviewed is working with every three-letter agency in existence including nasa the cia all these things not that nasa is a three-letter agency but the cia and all the different governmental bodies studying him and wanting to know more because they're putting a lot of importance on this and if our government is paying close attention to it we should be too so i believe in the coming years this is going to come much more to the forefront of the collective conscious we're going to have to confront these things as reality and that is a perfect segue <laughs> into the next type of spiritual crisis that is explored by Grav in this article, Close Encounters with UFOs, or what we call them now, UAPs, and Alien Abduction Experiences. The experiences of encounters with extraterrestrial spacecrafts and abduction by alien beings can often precipitate serious emotional and intellectual crises that have much in common with psychospiritual crises. This fact requires an explanation since most people consider UFOs simply in terms of four alternatives, actual visitation of the earth by alien spacecraft, hoax, misperception of natural events and devices of terrestrial origin, and psychotic hallucinations. Alvin Lawson has also made an attempt to interpret UFO abduction experiences as misinterpretations of the memory of the trauma of birth using my own clinical material in 1984. Descriptions of UFO sightings typically refer to lights that have an uncanny supernatural quality. These lights resemble those mentioned in many reports of visionary states. Carl Jung, who dedicated a special study of the problem of, quote, flying saucers, suggested that these phenomena might be archetypal visions originating in the collective unconscious of humanity 
rather than psychotic hallucinations or visits by extraterrestrials from distant civilizations. He supported his thesis by a careful analysis of legends about flying discs that have been told through history and reports about various similar apparitions that have occasionally caused crisis and mass panic. By the way, aside from me, there is like, if you go back, there's so many different uh, pieces of ancient um, artwork where you can see portrayed like what might look like UFO or flying chariots and things like this, which showcase that this phenomena has gone back for thousands of years and people have been portraying it in artwork, but we just haven't really picked up on it much here in modern culture. It's also been pointed out that the extraterrestrial beings involved in these encounters have important parallels in world mythology and religion, systems that have their roots in the collective unconscious. The alien spacecrafts and cosmic flights depicted by those who are allegedly abducted or invited for a ride resemble certain phenomena described in spiritual literature, such as the chariot of the Vedic god Indra or Ezekiel's flaming machine described in the Bible. The fabulous landscapes and cities visited during these journeys resemble the visionary experiences of paradise, celestial realms, and cities of light. The abductees often report that the aliens took them into a special laboratory and subjected them to painful examinations and frightening experiments using various exotic instruments. This involved probing the cavities of the body, LOL, everyone thinks of like the anal probe, right? Like in South Park. Examination of the sexual organs and taking samples of sperm and ova. There are frequent references to genetic experiences with the goal of producing hybrid offspring. These interventions are typically very unpleasant. I mean, yeah, you would fucking think so. I love, sometimes I love academic articles. I got anally probed. It was, it was very unpleasant. Yeah, to say the least. And occasionally border on torture. This brings the experiences of the abductees close to the initiatory crises of shamans and to the ordeals of the neophytes in aboriginal rites of passage, such as circumcision and sub-incision of the penis. There is an additional reason why a UFO experience can precipitate a spiritual crisis. It's similar to the problem we've discussed earlier in relation to spirit guides and channeling. The alien visitors are usually seen as representatives of civilizations that are incomparably more advanced to ours, not only technologically, but also intellectually, morally, and spiritually. Such contact often has very powerful mystical undertones and is associated with insights of cosmic relevance. It's thus easy for the recipients of such special attention to interpret it as an indication of their own uniqueness. Abductees might feel that they have attracted the interest of superior beings from an advanced civilization because they themselves are in some way exceptional and particularly suited for a special purpose. In Jungian psychology, a situation in which the individual claims the luster of the archetypal world for his or own person is referred to as ego inflation. For all these reasons, experiences of close encounters can lead to serious transpersonal crises. People who have experienced the strange world of UFO experiences and alien abduction need professional help from someone who has general knowledge of archetypal psychology and who's also familiar with specific characteristics of the UFO phenomena. 
Experienced researchers, such as Harvard psychiatrist John Mack, have brought ample evidence that the alien abduction experiences are phenomena sui generis that represent a serious conceptual challenge for Western psychiatry and materialistic science in general. An aspect of the UFO phenomena that's particularly baffling is that they occasionally have definite psychoid features. This means that they're synchronistically linked with events in the material world. It's become clear that it is naive and indefensible to see them as manifestations of mental disease or dismiss all of them as misperceptions and misinterpretations of ordinary phenomena. This is another like little add-in from me. Chris Bledsoe, who I interviewed and met myself, he experienced this same thing. One of his experiences with these interdimensional beings, the woman that called herself the, or he calls the lady, she didn't call herself anything. She, that's just a kind of a name he gave her. This woman who appeared to him, gave him information. And this happened right before the coronavirus pandemic. And he was at a conference where he almost like prophesied that there would be this mass event that would almost shut the world down and of course he was seen almost as looking like a crazy person and then sure enough the covid pandemic hit so just an example of like almost like this prophesized information that came from these beings over the years i have worked with many individuals who had experiences of alien abduction in their psychedelic or holotropic breathwork sessions and during spiritual emergencies Almost without exception, these episodes were extremely intense and experientially convincing. In view of my observations, I share the opinion of many serious UFO researchers that these experiences represent fascinating and authentic phenomena that deserve to be seriously studied. All right, the next type of spiritual crisis that they discuss is something called possession states. People experiencing this type of transpersonal crisis have a distinct feeling that their psyche and body have been invaded and that they are being controlled by an evil entity or energy with personal characteristics. They perceive it as coming from the outside of their own personality and as being hostile and disturbing. They can appear to be a confused, discarnate entity, a demonic being, or the consciousness of a wicked person invading them by means of black magic and hexing procedures. There are many different types and degrees of such conditions. In some instances, the true nature of this disorder remains hidden. The problem manifests as serious psychopathology such as antisocial or even criminal behavior, suicidal depression, murderous aggression, or self-destructive behavior, promiscuous and deviant sexual impulses and acting out, or excessive use of alcohol and drugs. It's often not until such a person starts experiential psychotherapy that, quote, possession is identified as a condition underlying these problems. In the middle of an experiential session, the face of a possessed person can become cramped and take the form of a mask of evil, and the eyes can assume a wild expression. The hands and body might develop strange contortions, and the voice may become altered and take on an otherworldly quality. When this situation is allowed to develop, the session can bear striking resemblance to exorcisms in the Catholic Church or exorcist rituals in various Aboriginal cultures. The resolution often comes after dramatic episodes of choking, projectile vomiting, screaming, and frantic physical activity, or even temporary loss of control. 
Sequences of this kind can be unusually healing and transformative and often result in deep spiritual conversion of the person involved. A detailed description of the most dramatic episode of this kind I've observed during my entire professional career can be found in my account of the case of Flora. He doesn't go into that more in this article. Other times, the possessed person is aware of the presence of the evil entity in his or her body and spends much effort trying to fight it and control its influence. In the extreme version of the possession state, the problematic energy can spontaneously manifest and take over in the middle of everyday life. This situation resembles the one described earlier for experiential sessions, but the individual here lacks the support and protection provided by the therapeutic context. Under such circumstances, he or she can feel extremely frightened and desperately alone. Relatives, friends, and often even therapists tend to withdraw from the possessed individual and respond with strange mixture of metaphysical fear and moral rejection. They often label the person as evil and refuse further contact with them. This condition clearly belongs in the category of psychospiritual crises in spite of the fact that it involves negative energies and associated with many objectionable forms of behavior. The demonic archetype is by its very nature transpersonal since it represents the negative mirror image of the divine. It also often appears to be, quote, a gateway phenomena, comparable to the terrifying guardians flanking the doors of Buddhist temples leading to radiant images of the Buddha or like gargoyles that you would see, right? Um, maybe guarding the outside of a church in more of like Western European contexts. Encounter of an entity of this kind often immediately precedes a profound spiritual experience. With the help of somebody who's not afraid of its uncanny nature and is able to encourage its full conscious manifestation, this energy can be dissipated and remarkable healing can occur. Next month, in February 2024, I'm actually interviewing Alex Monk, who is a psychotherapist based in London. He wrote a book called Trauma and the Supernatural in Psychotherapy, Working with the Curse Position in Clinical Practice. And he speaks a lot about this information, and it's very rare to be able to find a practicing clinician who explores this stuff. So don't worry, that episode is coming and we're going to dive a lot more into this kind of like demonic possession vibe stuff because in reality, it's like just sometimes manifestation of these like shadow archetypes in our psyche. And it's very, very fascinating and very easy to gloss over it in these very black and white, good, evil um, type of ways, right? So very excited for that episode and I can't wait for you to hear that interview. So we've made it to our final type of spiritual crisis, alcoholism and drug addiction as psychospiritual crisis. It makes good sense to describe addiction as a form of transpersonal crisis or spiritual emergency, in spite of the fact that it differs in external manifestations from more obvious types of psychospiritual crises. In addiction, like in the possession states, the spiritual dimension is obscured by the destructive and self-destructive nature of the disorder. While in other forms of spiritual crises, people encounter problems because of their difficulty to cope with the mystical experiences, in addiction, the source of the problem is strong spiritual longing and the fact that the contact with the mystical dimension has not been made. 
There exists ample evidence that behind the craving for drugs or alcohol is unrecognized craving for transcendence or wholeness. Many recovering people talk about their restless search for some unknown missing element or dimension in their lives and describe their unfulfilling and frustrating pursuit of substances, foods, relationships, sex, possessions, or power that reflects an unrelenting but vain effort to satiate this craving. The key to the understanding of addiction seems to be the fact that there exists a certain superficial similarity between mystical states and intoxication by alcohol or drugs. Both of these conditions share the feeling of dissolution, of individual boundaries, dissipation of disturbing emotions, and transcendence of mundane problems. Although the intoxication with alcohol or drugs lacks many important characteristics of the mystical state, such as serenity, numinosity, and richness of philosophical insights, the experiential overlap is sufficient to seduce alcoholics and addicts into abuse. William James was aware of this connection and wrote about it in his book, Varieties of Religious Experience. Quote, the sway of alcohol over mankind is unquestionably due to its power to stimulate the mystical faculties of human nature, usually crushed to earth by the cold facts and criticisms of the sober hour. Sobriety diminishes, discriminates, and says no. Drunkenness expands, unites, and says yes. This was written in 1961. James also saw the implications of this fact for therapy, which he expressed very succinctly in his famous statement, quote, the best treatment for dipsomania, an archaic term for alcoholism, is religiomania, end quote. C.G. Jung's independent insight into this regard was instrumental in the development of the worldwide network of the 12-step programs. It's not generally known that Jung played a very important role in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. The information about this little-known aspect of Jung's work can be found in a letter that Bill Wilson, the co-founder of AA, wrote to Carl Jung in 1961. Jung had a patient, Roland H., who came to him after having exhausted other means of recovery from alcoholism. Following a temporary improvement after a year's treatment with Jung, he suffered a relapse. Jung told him that his case was hopeless and suggested that his only chance was to join a religious community and hope for a profound spiritual experience. Roland H. joined the Oxford Group, an evangelical movement for emphasizing self-survey, confession, and service. There, he experienced a religious conversion that freed him from alcoholism. He then returned to New York City and became very active in the Oxford group there. He was able to help Bill Wilson's friend, Edwin T., who in turn helped Bill Wilson in his own personal crisis. In his powerful spiritual experience, Bill Wilson had a vision of a worldwide chain-style fellowship of alcoholics helping each other. Years later, Wilson wrote Jung a letter in which he brought to his attention the important role that Jung played in the history of AA. In his answer, Jung wrote in reference to his patient, quote, His craving for alcohol was the equivalent, on a low level, of the spiritual thirst for our being of wholeness expressed in medieval language, the union with God, end quote. Jung pointed out that in Latin, the term spiritus covers both meanings, alcohol and spirit. 
He then expressed very succinctly his belief that only a deep spiritual experience can save people from the ravages of alcohol. He suggested that the formula for treatment of alcoholism is spiritus contra spiritum. James's and Jung's insights have since been confirmed by the experiences of the 12-step program and by clinical research with psychedelics. A little bit of a fun anecdotal story for me. I've brought up this fun connection between 12-step programs and how much a connection with something bigger than myself was helpful for me. And I even had an interesting spirited conversation with one of my listeners about They had a horrible experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. Some people, especially those who have a very materialistic uh, view of the world and maybe have been burned by religion, are super turned off by 12-step programs because part of the 12-step program is giving your kind of suffering up to a higher power. And I think some 12-step groups, because they're they're run independently, they obviously use the the 12-step book. I think one, they can get a little culty or a lot culty. I've never joined it myself. And I think another aspect is that they can become super like ingrained in fundamentalist Christian belief when in reality one can have a relationship with a higher power that is completely non-denominational. And in my opinion, that's a more evolved way of viewing spirituality anyway. And when you start studying esotericism and you see the different esoteric threads of major world religions, like for example, the mystical sect of Islam is Sufism. The mystical sect of Buddhism is like Taoism. Um, mystical sects of Christianity can be like contemplative Christianity and mystics like St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila. And while they may have been living in Catholic church uh, in the day, a great example of this is Hildegard of Bingen, an amazing, one of my favorite mystics. She may have been practicing within the Catholic church because that's how she stayed alive at the time. She was incredibly mystical and probably could have sat down with a Sufi mystic from the Islam um sect she could have sat down with an eastern mystic and they all would have probably agreed that this divine presence this something bigger than us is all the same we are all like connected to this greater fabric and so i really think that alcoholics anonymous can get a super bad rap especially through our materialist rationalist view but it doesn't work for everyone but no one can deny that alcoholics anonymous is there for a reason and it has helped millions upon millions of people. So the thing is, it's just like if you go to church, you could have a horrible experience with religion, but some people genuinely do find healing and greater meaning through it. So it's all about finding what works for you and realizing that the person that made this framework, they experienced remarkable healing and they wanted to share it with other people. So it can be so easy to just say, ooh, fuck Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Like, I get it. I spent a short period of time when I was 19 working at a drug rehab uh, facility. And part of my job was to drive our clients who were the addicts that were at the treatment facility to their AA meetings, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and their NA meetings, their Narcotics Anonymous meetings. And I witnessed some of the most profoundly moving moments of my life at some of those meetings the ability for those meetings to help people transmute and shed their toxic shame. It was absolutely brilliant. The one thing that I kind of took issue with and I still take, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way at the time. And now I know why it bothers me so much is 
going into these meetings and saying, hi, I'm Molly. I'm an alcoholic. It's the same reason why I have an issue with saying like, hi, I'm Molly. I have BPD or I have, um, or I am a borderline. There we go. Or I have borderline personality disorder or, um, I am a depressed person, right? Because I don't have any of those labels. I thankfully made it through my treatment with mental health without having anything put on my mental health records, but I definitely identified with the traits. I don't like really think it's the most helpful thing ever to say, I am a borderline. I am an alcoholic because then you're identifying with a label and that's not who you are, right? That's that's not who you are. You're so much more. You contain multitudes. But like I said, none of these frameworks are perfect, but AA and 12-step communities, there are even um, Al-Anon communities, which is like 12-step communities for children of alcoholics. And um, I think there are like Codependence Anonymous. They've used this 12-step framework for so many different types of um, emotional, spiritual addiction issues. And many people have found so much freedom and healing in them. And so nothing's ever going to be perfect. There is a phrase from the 12 step community. That's like, take what resonates and leave the rest. And I think that is a beautiful statement to end our second episode of spiritual emergency on, because that is just it is take what resonates, leave the rest. A lot of this stuff, if you're still listening right now to this episode, it means that you have the capacity to hold these very confronting issues in your psyche. Many people aren't ready for this yet, and they're not going to be ready. It's the same reason why when I worked in these rehab facilities, there was a huge difference between the people that were made to go, they were court ordered to go, or their family said, if you don't go, we're cutting you off. And then the people that said, I'm sick of my shit and I'm coming and checking myself in. The people that are ready and open to these things are going to be much more likely to find something in it. If you're closed off and you're thinking it's all bullshit, woo woo, new age, whatever, fill in the blank, then it's not going to hold anything for you because you're shut down. Out of all the mystical texts that I've read, the overarching message is to surrender to the unknown. There is so much that we will never understand. And this is a universal experience. If you've experienced any of these things, number one, there's nothing wrong, broken about you. And on the opposite end, you are not the special chosen one. This is a universal experience. And as I mention over and over, and it feels very important to create an very, very firm disclaimer for this episode. I am not a professional. I am not a clinician. If you are experiencing any of these profound spiritual crises, these very sometimes frightening spiritual states, I highly recommend you look into the work of Stanislav Grov, but I also highly recommend that if you can and have the resources to do so, reach out to someone who has experience, a clinician that has knowledge and experience working with someone who is experiencing a spiritual crisis. Stanislav Grov and his wife created something called the Spiritual Emergence Network. So if you're going through this and you need support, look up the website spiritualemergence.org. And if you go down on their website, you can actually scroll down and click directory. And it says here, I'm on it right now, 
SEN, which is Spiritual Emergent Net- Emergence Network USA, has a network of over 200 professionals that specialize in different types of spiritual emergence. So the Groves created this directory to help anyone going through something like this. But as I mentioned, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a therapist. This is just a resource that I came across, but you are in charge of your own mental health and your own journey. And this podcast is just for education purposes, for entertainment purposes, and is not a replacement for therapy. So please make sure that you get the help you need. In the next and final episode of this multi-part series on spiritual emergency, we will be talking about treatment of psycho-spiritual crises and how individuals that specialize in this go about it. So I'm super excited to dive into this and tune in to the next episode to learn more about it. All right, everyone, that's it for another episode of the Back from the Borderline podcast. For ad-free content, as well as the ability to unlock access to hundreds of hours of bonus episodes, you can join my Patreon community as a premium submarine by visiting backfromtheborderline.com. If you would like to share how the podcast has impacted your life, just like Lauren did at the beginning of this episode, you can also use my website backfromtheborderline.com to send me a voicemail. From there, you can also check out my Substack articles. And by signing up to my Substack, you'll receive my recovery musings and written reflections on my journey directly to your inbox, either through a paid or free subscription. As always, I will include some resources and additional material in the episode description. So if you want to check those out, you can feel free to do so. If you don't have the ability to sign up for premium or support the podcast in that way, no problem. You can do just as much by writing me a review or rating the podcast in your podcast app. It takes two seconds, but does a lot in the way of helping other people find my work. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And remember, anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. I love you lots, and I'll see you right back here next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.